You're listening to The Semi-Filled Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. You are stopping in the dark. Maybe, but this I do know. The one thing Southerners like her hate more than the colored. Arrogant, Yankee pricks like Willis. Were you watching her? She folded her arms and sat back when Willis spoke. When you began, she opened up, leaned forward, removed her glasses. These are signs. Signs of what? She likes you. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 19 of The Semi-Failed Writer. I'm going to apologize in advance. During this recording, you might hear some planes flying over my home. I have no control of that, obviously, but the reason that's happening is because the world is literally on fire. And yes, I am using the word literally correctly, unlike most of you. If you've read the news, you know that there's a ton of wildfires going on in Southern California, Oregon, There's smoke covering the entire West Coast, and there's this one particular wildfire that's close to where I live. Just the other day, I could see the flames from my home. It is close, but I'm not at risk yet to evacuate. I don't have a warning in effect for me at the moment, so hopefully that stays that way. The biggest issue we have is the air quality. Every time I go outside, it's like a giant campfire and it, and it won't go away. Um, so I'm trying to limit my time outside, but other than that, I'm doing okay. I know you guys weren't asking for an update, but I thought I would give it to you anyway. Today's episode is a tribute to an incredible man and an incredible actor, Chadwick Boseman. Just two weeks ago, uh, we found out that he had passed away after battling, uh, four years of cancer. And that one hurt to hear about it. And I'm sure all of you are just as shocked, just as blindsided to hear that this happened. And it's tragic too, because, you know, this guy had a lot of talent and he had the potential to do even more wonderful things for this planet. And just like many other wonderful creatives, he has left this planet way too soon. The good news is we do have his collection of films that we can watch and we can cherish for years on end. And I thought I'd do a film debate between two of those films. So I was looking through and I decided that the two films I would pit against each other are 42 and Marshall. And the reason why I did this is because I felt these two were very similar to each other than his other films. Chadwick Boseman is playing these two icons in each of these films. One's a biopic about Jackie Robinson and the other one is about Thurgood Marshall. And they are both legends in their respective fields, one for baseball and one for criminal justice. And so we're going to see how these two films pit against each other, which one's going to be the better one. So let's just get right into it. Here are the introductions. In the Red Corner, released in 2013, directed by Brian Helgeland about one of the greatest baseball players of all time, It's 42. And in the blue corner, from 2017, directed by Reginald Hudlin and showcasing a lawyer before he became the first African-American Supreme Court Justice, it's Marshall. 
Here are the rules. We're going to have seven rounds. I will award a point after each round, and the film with the most points wins. Now we're going to go unconventional today, and I'm going to be arguing both sides, just like I did with the very first film debate that I did. Now normally I would have Eric helping me with these debates, but he's going to sit this one out. He just started a new job. He's still trying to get his bearings, and, and I don't want to take away from that. It's a little bit more important than my podcast. But he did watch both films with me. He had some notes, and he shared them, so I'm going to incorporate that into, into these arguments. So let's start with the opening statements, and I will start with 42. This is a question directed to all the non-baseball fans out there. When you hear the number 42, what do you think that means in terms of the baseball world? No, it is not the number of teams in Major League Baseball. It is not the number of players on a team, nor is it the year Babe Ruth died. 42 is the number designated to Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the very first African-American man to play in the MLB in the modern era. The number carries great significance in baseball, as it represents the breaking of the color barrier. It represents many honors, including Rookie of the Year. To this day, it is the only number retired from Major League Baseball and honored once a year with all players wearing that number in Jackie's honor. But in the film 42, it's not only about Jackie's efforts to integrate into the majors. I will argue that this film is better than Marshall because it does a great job of showing both sides of this cultural movement. On one side, plenty of death threats, plenty of protests, more than plenty of racial slurs. But there were advocates on the other side, people who wanted him to succeed, people who wanted to succeed with him. 42 does a great job in capturing a critical moment in Jackie's life and baseball as we know it today. And now, my argument for Marshall. Here are two things the general public knows about the legendary Thurgood Marshall. He was lead counsel in Supreme Court case of Brown versus the Board of Education, which ultimately led to the desegregation of schools. And the other is his appointment to the United States Supreme Court. But there were other cases he fought during his legendary career in the justice system that were just as significant. In Marshall, he helps in the defense of a colored man accused of a crime he did not commit. This is a gripping film. It's about a small-town scandal, but the ramifications would infect an entire nation and the future of the NAACP. Here's the best part of this film. When we have a movie with a central character that is a person of color, there also seems to be a white savior complex in play. Well, the tables have turned here. Thurgood Marshall is the savior. It is only with him that there is even a chance for success. In the film, they quote Exodus chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, and it best explains my point. It says, And the Lord commanded Moses to enlist his brother's help. He shall speak for you to the people, he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Let's start with round one. Round one is story. Let me talk about the story of Marshall. It takes place in the year 1940 and is based on the real-life case of the state of Connecticut versus Joseph Spell. Joseph Spell is a black man accused of raping his employer, a socialite named Eleanor Sturbing. The NAACP takes an interest in this case and sends their sole legal counsel, Thurgood Marshall, to Bridgeport to represent Mr. Spell. The judge presiding the case does not allow Thurgood to speak during the trial, so the defense has to be carried by Sam Friedman, an insurance attorney who has never handled a criminal case. Even with Mr. Marshall pushed to the sidelines, the defense was already at a disadvantage. 
the judge is a family friend of the prosecuting attorney. Sam Friedman is hesitant to lead this case mainly because of the potential damage it'll do to his reputation. And don't forget, it's 1940. America is racist as hell. But Thurgood does not panic. He does thorough work to try and poke holes into the prosecution's case, and he coaches Friedman as he sits next to him during the trial. Even when new information arises that helps the prosecution, Marshall gives Sam the confidence to commit to this trial and believe that this is a case that can be won and should be won. In the end, Joseph Spell is a free man. Sam and Thurgood develop respect for each other and spend the rest of their lives defending civil rights. It's a gripping crime drama that keeps you on the edge of your seat with twists and turns up until the very end. Now in 42, the film takes place in the years 1945 to 1947. I feel as though this is less of a story arc and more like a series of events, like a chronology. It starts with Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He believes it is time to have an African-American play in the major leagues. After reviewing dozens of potential candidates, he decides to bring in Jackie Robinson. He has the upside. He has the temperament. He even has a religious affiliation that makes him the perfect fit. And this film follows Jackie as he makes his start in the minor leagues and ultimately participates in his first full season as a Dodger in 1947. But of course, it's not an easy journey. It's 1947. America is still racist as hell. Baseball stadiums are still segregated, with white fans yelling unspeakable things to Jackie. And not only do you have other baseball teams taking offense to Jackie's presence, but his own teammates are wanting to boycott if he remains in uniform. But there are plenty of people on Jackie's side. Besides Ricky, you have Jackie's teammates and managers that stand up for him. You have a news reporter that acts as an advisor to him. And of course, there's Jackie's wife who has been there from the very beginning. Over time, other people start to come around recognizing that Jackie's a great teammate and that no one deserves such mistreatment. And Jackie, he just wants to play baseball. He doesn't want the weight of an entire race on his shoulders, but eventually he accepts his responsibility, he embraces his position, and successfully gets through the first season. This is a great story about overcoming adversity and fighting for equality. So what is the better story? The case of a man falsely charged with the crime or Jackie Robinson's introduction and acceptance into Major League Baseball? Something I didn't mention earlier are the ramifications. What are the stakes if either Jackie or Thurgood fail? If Jackie can't get through a full season with the Dodgers, then it may take decades before baseball makes another attempt to integrate black players. If Thurgood loses the case, then an innocent man goes to prison. Black people will lose jobs because white people will fear they'll rape them too, and the NAACP may lose its funding and ultimately shut down. Now, knowing history, the events from 42 were more significant than State of Connecticut versus Joseph Spell. But as I was writing this stuff down and reading it out loud, it almost sounds like Marshall has more to lose. Here's something else. There's not a major story arc going on in 42. At least it's not obvious. You have several individuals having a change of heart. But Sam Friedman had the biggest arc. He was thrown into a situation he didn't want to be in. He reluctantly agrees to stay on the case. And he sort of acts as a ventriloquist dummy for Thurgood, feeding him his lines. And there is a moment where his attitude changes. Right before a verdict is reached, the prosecutors offer a plea deal of five years in prison. 
and Marshall has already left Bridgeport, so it's up to Sam to give this offer to his client. And he convinces him to not take the deal. Sam now has the belief that he is doing the right thing. Also, I thought this film did a great job of presenting the trial. I know it helps that the general public is less familiar with this film than Jackie's story. We know how Jackie's story plays out, but I wasn't sure what the verdict would be for Spell. I had an idea, but both the defense and the prosecution had really good arguments. It could have gone either way. So with that, I'm going to give the point to Marshall, as the story kept my interest more than 42 did. Round 2. Round two is dialogue. I did not take account of how many times the N-word was used in 42. It was said a lot, mostly by the Phillies manager Ben Chapman. And there was even a 12-year-old kid who's parroting his dad and yells the N-word out loud too. Yikes. It was necessary to have the word spoken because this is supposed to be a hostile environment. And you understand that people aren't born to hate. It's learned. So other than hate speech, there are some great lines in this film. Branch had the best lines, especially when he's giving words of wisdom to Jackie. Jackie asks if he doesn't want a player with the guts to fight back, and Branch says, No, no, I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. And then he's trying to convince Bird Shotton to manage the Dodgers for one season, but he really likes retirement, he likes his sleep, he likes the roses, and Branch says, Oh, roses and sleep are two wonderful things, Bert. But sleep you can get when you're in your casket. And flowers look great on top of it. But, uh, you don't look like a dead man to me, Bert. He is a very good motivational speaker. There are also a couple of lines that were actually uttered in real life. The manager, Leo DeRocher, is credited with the phrase, Nice guys finish last. He also says this to the team. I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a zebra. When he really said it, he threw an F-bomb in there, and I have no idea why they kept it out of the film. There were at least 42 N-bombs in this movie, but no, we crossed the line with that F-bomb. That's not going in. Anyway, Hall of Fame shortstop P.B. Reese tells Jackie, maybe tomorrow we'll wear a 42 so nobody could tell us apart. That was actually said by Gene Hermansky four years later in 1951, but the director liked that line so much he decided to incorporate it into the film. The line that made me laugh the hardest, I think it was Ralph Branca asking Jackie why he doesn't shower with the rest of the team. And he was trying to make a point that he is an equal member of his team and he should be doing the same things as everyone else. And then he follows that with the line, come on, take a shower with me, Jackie. He realizes very quickly that that came out wrong. He's stumbling over his words to clear things up until Jackie has to tell him to just stop. And what's funny is like right before that happened, I had a feeling that he was going to say those exact lines. I was like, I know he's going to invite him to like, come shower. And I knew it'd be inappropriate. And the fact that he said it was, I don't know, sort of validating for me. Uh, I don't know. Let's talk about Marshall now. Thurgood Marshall is also a good motivational speaker. He makes a great closing statement for his client that's at the beginning of the film. And he also makes these great speeches for the press. And at moments, he provides motivation to Sam, but he also shows command over him. He has the authority and the confidence to just order him around, tell him what to say, tell him what to do. 
there's a bit of an odd couple dynamic and it is fun to watch. Now, most of the dialogue is spent discussing the case. There's cross-examining witnesses during the trial. There's hypothesizing motives and pressuring people for the truth. We need to know what really happened that night. But it's very dramatic. You get all sorts of reactions when someone gets caught in a lie or gives a compelling speech like the way Joseph did that totally derailed the, the prosecution. And they don't go over the top, which is great. You don't have attorneys yelling at witnesses, pressuring them to just blurt out the confession. You don't have the lawyers like in uh, A Time to Kill and A Few Good Men where they're like, you did this, you did it. And the witness is, you know, feeling pressure and they're still yelling. And then finally they're like, yes, I did it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it wasn't melodramatic. And I liked that. There are some funny uh, gems sprinkled into Marshall. And I'll give a couple examples. When describing Sam, there's a character named Tad. And he says, if you dropped a nickel while kicking him in the balls, he'd return it to you. And that was just a great way of saying how um, passive and how non-aggressive Sam is. Later on in the film, Sam gets beaten up by these racist thugs. And when he goes home, his wife sees all these cuts on his face. He's limping. And his response is, well, I got the first punch or something along the lines of that. And so this is all a very dramatic story, but there is a sense of humor that makes this all interesting. There is a serious story here, but the amount of hate spewed at African-Americans is definitely on the lighter side than in 42. I don't feel that Thurgood is as threatened by white people than Jackie was. And I don't know if that has to do with the location that this was in or just because Marshall is such a confident man that he can withstand any of the hate that's lodged towards him. I don't know. Now to make a decision, do we go with hate speech and lines that were said by real people or Marshall's commanding speech and good court drama dialogue? You know, I'm not going to put the use of the N-word into consideration here, although I will say they were very creative in how they used it in 42. Aside from that, I really believe the dialogue in Marshall was great. I just felt that there were more impactful lines in the movie 42. So I'm going to give the point to 42. Round three. Round three is characters. We'll first talk about the protagonist in each of these films and then all the supporting characters. Let's start with Thurgood Marshall. He is a great character. He is smart. He is charismatic. He is confident. He has to be all those things. Because when you have a black man like him walking somewhere, all the white people will assume that he's lesser than what he is. They'll think he's someone more like Joseph Spell. And that's no offense to Spell, but they don't understand that he's this incredibly educated person and is fully aware of his rights. So it is necessary to be this almost domineering presence wherever he's at. Sam is also a great character too, because like I said about the story arc, he's only interested in doing this safe job, insurance attorneys. You can tell he has sort of a conscience. He does feel about the very first case that he uh, is tried at the very beginning of the film. He is reluctant to fight back. He knows like he knows there are injustices, but he's thinking about the safety of his own family. But he starts to come into his own. He starts to feel more confident in himself because he is getting that from Thurgood Marshall. And he's able to win the case. And I liked the, the growth that he had in this particular trial. 
Now, the supporting characters, a lot of them have very brief appearances, but they make a huge statement. Let's talk about the forewoman. She's not a typical housewife socialite, just more concerned with what she's wearing, who she's associated with. She is headstrong, and she's not afraid to talk back to anybody. She even talks back to the judge and corrects him in saying that she is the forewoman. You also have Judge Foster. It is very clear that he doesn't want the law on Joseph Spell's side. He gives him a disadvantage, but there's an interesting point at the very end where he allows Joseph Spell's testimony to stay in the trial. And you just see the way that he's thinking about it, and that's very powerful to see how he's reconsidering everything that he's hearing in this trial. And you know who's the best supporting character, and it's got to be the person that has the least lines in this film, and that's John Sturbing. I think he only utters one line, and that's in the flashback where he's berating his wife for making him look bad, and then you're left with seeing Eleanor with the bloody nose. But the rest of the time, I think you only see him in the courtroom. He's sitting down next to his wife, and he has this angry look on his face the entire time. You can see him reacting to the testimony and what they're saying about his wife and him. And it's, he does such a good job at it because you see the way that he looks and reacts. And it's like, yeah, this guy's a real prick. I believe it when they say that he's mean to everybody. I believe that he's a wife beater. And that's pretty incredible that just from facial expressions and body language that he conveys so much. Now you have Jackie Robinson great ball player and his main job throughout this whole movie is that he's gotta play the rules he is defiant at times and they talk about a history of him being defiant but he can't do that here because he can't give anybody a reason to believe that he does not belong in the major leagues so he's able to navigate these uncharted waters and keep himself out of trouble now there is a moment where the pressure really gets to him i mentioned ben chapman spewing the n-word left and right He's up to bat, and it feels like forever. I have no idea how long this scene took. But Chapman is just heckling the guy and saying all these things, and he's even throwing his teammates under the bus by insulting them as well. And it goes on and on and on. And once his at-bat is over, Jackie goes into the dugout and into the hallway, and he smashes his baseball bat and screams in frustration. And it's a very different reaction than what he had throughout this entire film. You can tell that this was all weighing on him and it was really powerful to see him finally burst and get this emotion out. Now, I really like Branch Rickey. He is the general manager and he definitely has leadership over everybody. You've got people left and right, even his own assistants and teammates saying, we can't have Jackie here. Do you know how this looks? This is embarrassing and I want to leave and stuff. But he does not care. He shows that he has little consideration for any of their um, of their resistance. And he does a good job of just turning the tables back on them and threatening to fire them if they don't follow suit. This guy is not swayed by anybody and knows he's doing the right thing and he's determined to make this happen. That is a great quality to have. And then you have the teammates and they're on the different sides of the spectrum. You've got like a handful of them that are very clear on how they feel about Jackie and are really passionate about their team and wanting to bring some kind of integrity back into the team if they get rid of him. And then you have the other characters too that are in support of Jackie. And it was nice to see these friendships develop with him. They show some consideration for him. I like that. 
But I really do feel that Marshall has the better characters because there's more nuance to them. Like I said, these supporting characters, some of them only show up for just a few minutes. They don't say much, but they have a lot of impact of what they do. And then I feel particularly with the teammates in 42, they are one note. They're only set there to do one thing and one thing only is to be on Jackie's side or not. There's not much about backstory or anything there. They're not as strongly developed as the ones in Marshall. So the point goes to Marshall. Round four. Round four is cast and crew. I have a list here of some of the more well-known names for 42, so I'll list them off and then I'll go into a little more detail about some of them. So in 42, not only do you have Chadwick, you also have Harrison Ford, Christopher Maloney, Alan Tudyk, John C. McGinley, and T.R. Knight. Harrison Ford does a great job with Branch Rickey. I know Harrison Ford more as an action star than anything else. He was Han Solo. He's Indiana Jones. He's get off my plane guy. And so those characters, he's, he's perfect for that because he's got the swagger and the confidence and the attitude. What's needed for Branch Rickey is this authority. And Harrison Ford really gives that in this performance. I really like Christopher Maloney as Leo DeRocher because of the way that he's talking to his team and trying to set him straight. I think all those years at Law & Order SVU really paid off in this case. And then Steve the Pirate, Alan Tudyk. I think he's, he's hilarious. He's more of a, a comedic actor. And I can only imagine how difficult it was for him to say the N-word so many times. The number of times that he had to do that. And I don't even know if it was improv too, because it almost sounded like when he's trying to heckle Jackie Robinson, some of that might have been improv. But I cannot imagine how uncomfortable he was trying to do it, but he really, he sold it. He sold the racism. Now, I want to give a shout out to Lucas Black and Ryan Merriman. I know them more as, I hate saying the word child stars, but I know them more for the roles that they did when they were younger. So you have Lucas Black, who was in Sling Blade, a great film. And then Ryan Merriman. If you grew up watching Disney movies in the 90s, you'll recognize this guy. He was in Smart House and Luck of the Irish. And if I did 42 as a film review instead of a film debate, I probably would have had these two guys under So What Happened to You, Man. It was nice to see them in adult roles. I don't know what other decisions that they're making with their career, but I think they did fine here. Now for Marshall, there's four names that I am more familiar with than the others. There's Josh Gad, Sterling K. Brown, Kate Hudson, and James Cromwell. Josh, I'm not entirely familiar with his career. I do know he is a comedic actor, and so it was nice to see him in a more serious role. He does have a sense of humor. There are moments where he makes me laugh, but he is supposed to be a serious character here. Now, Sterling K. Brown, this guy's been acting for years, but this is kind of where his prime, this is where he reached his apex. This Is Us, the TV show, came out around 2016, and that's a really people really took notice of him. They finally knew who this guy was and recognized that he's this incredible actor. And a film like Marshall supports that as well. And Kate Hudson, I wish she had made better choices and roles. I know she did some rom-coms over the years. She's done some small indie films, but she does well in a major motion picture. She did great as this, this socialite wrongly accusing her employee of, of rape. And I think she was great. 
But I feel here that the cast and crew round is going to go to 42. I feel there are more recognizable names here, and I think they all did incredible jobs. I did like the cast. I did like the cast of Marshall. But I also want to mention something else. Jesse Smollett, he was in this movie. He played Langston Hughes. We know what happened to that guy's career. So yeah, 42 gets this one. Round five. Round five is music. I'm going to go through these next three rounds a little bit quicker than I did in the previous ones. Now, I was looking up who did the music for Marshall, and it's Marcus Miller. This guy is a legend. I remember my uncle being excited to see him perform at a jazz festival that he goes to every year. He is ahead of his own band and has performed everywhere across the world. He has played as a session bass player. He has performed with Frank Sinatra, Aretha Franklin, Bill Withers, Mariah Carey. The list goes on and on and on. And on top of this, he is also a record producer and a film composer, particularly for Marshall. There are some other songs that were featured in this film. There's a, a song by Tchaikovsky, one by Count Basie. In the end credits, there's a song, and I apologize, I forgot to write the name of it down, but it was performed by Diane Warren and Common. And there's a scene where music features prominently, and it's where Thurgood Marshall goes back home briefly. He hangs out at a club with his wife and Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. And there's a song called Trouble in Mind, written by Richard M. Jones, performed by Audra Day. Now, I'm going to take a moment here, and if you remember that scene, be alarmed, but don't be alarmed at what you saw. The scene right before this, you have Buster, who is Thurgood's wife, she announces that she is pregnant. And immediately after that, she's drinking a martini, and she's surrounded by hundreds of people smoking cigarettes. Those are the two worst things you could do while you're pregnant. Now keep in mind, this is 1940, and I don't think doctors knew how bad those things were to unborn babies, with the birth defects and the complications. So that's not to defend what she's doing, but they just didn't know better at the time. So that's why that was there, in case you didn't remember. Now let's go back to the music. Let's talk about 42. The composer for the music 42 is by Mark Isham. You look at his credits, he's done just as many things as Marcus Miller. He is a musician, he is also a film composer, and it has this giant list of films that he's done over the years. One of the most notable scores that he's done is A River Runs Through It. He was nominated for an Academy Award. He's also done the score for Point Break and Varsity Blues, many, many more. I think those are the two I picked just because you would know what those movies are. And there were also songs featured that were appropriate for that time in 1947. You have a song by Hank Williams, you've got Cole Porter, Gene Autry, and Duke Ellington. Now I'll be honest, with the music of 42, I was kind of disappointed. I felt it was non-existent. I don't remember hearing a score, like a track being played in the background while any of the baseball scenes were going on any of the exchanges between like Branch and Jackie or anybody else. I don't remember any of it. It didn't play a part in this film. It was definitely more significant in Marshall. It really set a tone for the trial and it had more of a presence. It was just as much of a character as anything else there. So I'm going to give the point to Marshall. Round six is production. Now, the objective for both of these films, since these were taking place in the 1940s, 
it was necessary to find interiors and wardrobes that were accurate for that time. So it was essential to have good costume design and art direction. Now I'm looking at the credit list on uh, IMDB. That's where I get some of my research done is through that and Wikipedia. But I'm looking at the list of credits for 42 and it is long. There are so many people that worked on all the behind the scenes stuff with 42 with art direction and costume design and special effects and even uh, the choreography for the baseball. And it was not only about the outfits that they were wearing at the time, the bus that they were driving, it was also about the uniforms and trying to recreate the uniforms and the gloves that they were trying to play with at the time and also the stadium itself. I don't remember, I don't think Ebbetsfield exists anymore or maybe it does, but it was necessary to recreate that stadium and that field so it looks like it was something out of 1947. Marshall did the same thing with recreating outfits. They did a great job with hair and makeup. Um, most of the film, I believe, took place in interiors, so they had to make the furniture look like it was from 1940 and the courtroom. But this is the best thing about it. I looked at who did the costume design for Marshall, and it was Ruth E. Carter. That name might not sound familiar to you, but let me tell you this. She was the costume designer for Black Panther. And she won an Academy Award for her work on Black Panther, the first African-American to win in that category. That's a big deal. So essentially, both these movies are doing the same things. They're just trying to capture what it looked like back in the 1940s. But who did it better? This is a comment that Eric gave me when he was watching this. He was kind of disappointed with the way that they were showing the action at the baseball games in 42. He found it weird the way that they were shooting the athletes as they were running to base or fielding a ball or hitting the ball, and it just didn't feel like it was authentic. And so think about Wesley Snipes. I think this is common knowledge now. So he looks like a freakish athlete, and he was in White Men Can't Jump and also Major League. And then you find out after the fact that he has no athletic ability whatsoever, and so they're having to cheat a little bit and shoot from a different angle to make it look like he has athletic ability and he was worried and I was worried that that was what was happening with 42 is that maybe these people can't demonstrate that they can play baseball and so they're not showing everything that knocks it down a peg and that gives Marshall the advantage so Marshall gets the point on this one round seven round seven is legacy we're not going to talk about the legacy of Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall. This is not a competition between that. We're going to talk about two things. What do these films do in terms of supporting the legacy of Chadwick Boseman? And what do these films do for the legacy of these individuals, Thurgood Marshall and Jackie Robinson? Now, I believe 42 was Chadwick Boseman's breakthrough performance. This was his debut as a main character in a film did a great job there and then years later he does Thurgood and he's really commanding this film and he's really showing his acting chops however I feel like these two are not the best films that are going to define who he is as an actor it's going to be Black Panther him being T'Challa is so inspiring it was such a successful film and the African-American community really looked up to that film and felt so proud of all the work that all these people did so I think that's his defining role is in that movie Black Panther. So what about 
Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall. Now, 42, it is a film that highlights a very important time in Jackie Robinson's career and in Major League Baseball. This is when he first gets into the Major Leagues. And according to my friend J.P. Hornstra, the very first game that he plays in the Majors is considered to be the second greatest baseball game in Dodger history. And J.P. is just not some person out there that just has an opinion like everybody else. He's a sports writer. He actually wrote a book about the 50 greatest Dodger games of all time. And he did a lot of research to put this together, so there's some more merit to this. And if you're interested in reading that book, it's available where all books are sold. You're welcome, JP. Now, with this particular story in Marshall, uh, State of Connecticut versus Joseph Spell, that is not as significant of a case in Thurgood Marshall's career. It is important. I mean, a man's life was at risk here. But I remember in, I don't know if it was middle school or in high school, but I watched a film in class and it was called Separate But Equal. And it was about Thurgood Marshall and what he did with the case of Brown versus Board of Education. That's the case that we're more familiar with. And it was Sidney Poitier that was Thurgood Marshall in that film. That film was more significant to Thurgood Marshall's career because it is talking about this landmark case. It's a film that I still remember to this day, and I only saw that one time in school. It was a TV movie, and I don't remember why we even watched it, but even 25 years ago when I saw it, it still has an effect on me. So the fact that 42 is talking about events that are incredibly significant in Jackie Robinson's career, I do give legacy to 42. Now, if you were keeping score during this debate, you already knew that Marshall won after round six. But we went through all the rounds, and now we can officially end this. Marshall is the winner. I'll give you full disclosure here. I had never watched 42 up until this weekend. I had seen Marshall once, not the entire thing, maybe about 60% of it. And I thought Marshall was okay, and I was fully expecting 42 to be the better film because it had a bigger production. I think it was promoted way more than Marshall was. But I watched it, and I think it was a good film, but Marshall was definitely better than 42. And Chadwick did great in both films. Like, he had his debut with 42, but he really hit his stride with Marshall. He really commanded that performance, and it was great to see. And like I said earlier in this episode, it's tragic that we will not get to see any more of him. But we do have these films to remember him by. I hope he rests in peace. Okay, you can reach me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifieldwriter.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitch at semifieldwriter. These last two weeks have been wild. I really hope that the next two weeks aren't even wilder than that, but it's 2020. You never know. But until then, stay safe, everybody. Take care of yourselves. I'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks.